0: Based on that, does one need a solid background in Judaism to read or really truly appreciate Agnon? Uh, Well, those are two different questions. (laughs) To read Agnon,
1: one does not need a solid grounding in in, uh, Judaism. One need not have read all of these, these books behind me. You don't need to be a learned rabbi. As a matter of fact, you don't even need to do it in Hebrew. There are some very, very fine translations to English and to all other languages, some of them edited by myself, some of them even translated by myself, if I can toot my own translator's pen. As a matter of fact, those judges in Stockholm that gave him the Nobel Prize, the only time Hebrew literature was so honored, they all read him in translation. It's a very typically chauvinistic Israeli question which is posed to me all the time. Echafsha, how could you possibly read Agnon in translation? How could you translate Agnon, right? Which is the same uh, which is the same question you could get in the streets of Moscow about Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. It's the same question you could get in in Madrid about Cervantes. It's the same question you can get in London about Shakespeare. Right. Every nation, every culture has its own, its own, you know, great literary hero, which you can't imagine, you know, can't imagine reading him in any in any uh, in any foreign language. Only only the Yiddish translation of of uh, of Shakespeare was famously advertised as being (laughs) translated and improved in the Yiddish the yiddish, only once you've read it and only once you've read Lear in the original Yiddish do you do you truly appreciate it but that was just a kind of uh, uh, you know uh, yiddish uh, arrogance um, but uh, but obviously we read in translation all the time right um, and even when we don't read in translation uh, when we're reading the classics so much is lost do we really appreciate every uh, reference and cultural hint between the lines of Shakespeare today, even though we are readers of English, no, we certainly don't. And of course, there are very many, you know, scholarly reference works that will help fill in those blanks. But you don't need that. You don't need that to understand the meaning of of of, of Hamlet or King Lear or Macbeth, right? The meaning is plain, and it's a mistake to think that. Oh well, we can't. I remember when I was in high school when I when Ninth grade, they started teaching us Shakespeare. And I remember there was just this, this sense that, oh, Shakespeare's really hard. I mean, I think the teachers did us a disservice by creating this kind of idea. It's actually in other contexts, in my work in education, I've compared it to sometimes what happens when, when students uh, begin learning Gemara here, here in Israeli schools, when students begin learning Gemara towards the end of elementary school, you know, they're, they're told Gomorrah is very serious. We were told Shakespeare is very serious. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of work. It scares everybody off even before they open the book, right? They become convinced that they can't do it. They become convinced that this is too hard for them. Uh, there is no, you know, we have here in Jerusalem is a wonderful uh, amateur uh, Shakespeare company that in, they perform in, uh, they do Shakespeare in the park every summer in, in Jerusalem, and we take our kids, uh, you know, we have younger children, and you know, we've been doing it for years, from the time they were they were very young. It's amazing. They're able to follow certainly the outlines of the plot, uh, you know, besides the fact that, you know, Shakespeare was written. Shakespeare was written to be consumed by the masses. It wasn't some kind of highfalutin thing that only the intelligentsia would would understand but right? even school children are able to understand shakespeare and certainly able to understand agnon now that doesn't mean they're going to catch every reference to to hazal or by the way to very many you know historical references that were contemporary to agnon's time you know earlier in the 20th century historical figures historical events both in in europe and germany and in the land of israel that's why we have scholarship that's why we have reference works and you know after all we do all carry around the you know the collected wisdom of civilization in our pockets if if one need to we can you know look look things up but the stories themselves are eminently understandable and that's why they have such universal 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 appeal um, some stories are a little easier to swallow others require a little a little more heavy lifting in terms of you know understanding certain uh, concepts uh, and whatnot but I think that that's, you know, I think that's the that's the uh, answer to the question Now that being said, there is no doubt that those of us that are familiar with the rabbinic canon and the rabbinical texts, even, you know, very many Americans who are fluent in rabbinic sources, but for whatever reason, won't or can't read modern Hebrew literature in the original and will read it in translation, even in translation, in a good translation, uh, those readers will or should catch a lot of the references, even in translation, to classical sources, the classical mikorot, to to verses in the Bible or passages in in the rabbinic writings, and we'll be able to consider, oh, what is he doing by drawing our attention to that particular gemara? And when he does that, you know, what is he doing? Sometimes Agnon made a reference to some classical source, you know, just because that was the kind of, he wanted to pepper his prose with those kinds of uh, turns of phrase. It's, a, it's just a simply a, ling- a linguistic turn. Other times, he's trying to create an intertextual bridge where he's, he's trying to get us to consider, oh, well, how does this modern story, how is it built on the template of, of an Agadah? Right? How is this modern story somehow in dialogue with that classical text. And then sometimes he's doing it ironically. He's he's taking the source out of context. He's flipping it on its head in order to draw our attention to exactly how deviant the plot here is from the classic template. And of course, you know, people, interpreters of, of with integrity can debate, you know, which kind of sources, is, is it this or is it that, or is it the other thing? Uh, and that's part of the work of interpretation of, of the text. But, uh, but first, those sources have to be identified. But even if you don't identify them, like I presume those, those judges in Stockholm, you understand this is, this is world-class literature. It works on the level of, of, the, of the surface reading without having to go you know, underneath uh, in order to sort of tease out all of those references.
0: You've written about the relationship between um, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook and, and uh, what was that relationship? And how did uh, Rabbi Cook view Agno in, you know, in, in, in terms of his place, possible place in Jewish literature and history?
1: Oh, thank you for referencing that, uh, that article I had written a number of years ago. It was published, you mentioned that I'm the editor of the journal Tradition. So our listeners can visit traditiononline.org uh, and in the archives, you can find that article uh, comparing, uh, discussing the relationship between Agnon and Rav Kook. Rav Kook, you know, who I'm, I'm sure our listeners know was uh, this colossally important 20th century rabbinic figure. Uh, he becomes the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of the land of Israel before the establishment of the state. Uh, but at the time that Agnon arrives in Yafo in 1908, Rav Kook was the rabbi of the town. He had arrived a number of years prior, and he was the rabbi of 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 Jaffa. Agnon was, you know, almost a full generation younger than than Rav Kook. But Rav Kook, as part of his Zionist ethos, understood that Zionism wasn't couldn't just be about bringing Jews to the land of Israel or back to the land of Israel. It wasn't just about building up the infrastructure of society here between these borders. And it wasn't even just about creating the physical facts on the ground that could one day lead to an autonomous Jewish state. It had to be part of a larger spiritual and cultural revival. That part of being a nation means, yes, you have a state and yes, you have control over your own affairs, but you also have your expansive culture. And through all the years of the diaspora, we didn't have that. We were culturally handicapped. Our cultural efforts, of course, were always maintained in that portable homeland in the text, in our books, in our Bate Midrash. And we poured a lot of our intellectual and spiritual creativity into developing a Torah literature. But a healthy nation has its own language, and a healthy nation is able to conduct its affairs in that language, and a healthy nation is able to be culturally creative in that that language. And while, of course, Rev. Cook thought our first commitment's were to Torah, he thought that part of the return was going to be this revival, and that's why, as opposed to kind of like the the old guard that saw the modernization or the revival of Hebrew as a modern language as a kind of uh, as a kind of um, of sacrilege, because you're taking the holy tongue and using it for the for the car mechanic and the and the pharmacy. That's what Yiddish is for. That's, Yiddish is the language of everyday life. Uh, modern Zionism and modern religious Zionism saw the return to Hebrew as a great spiritual and cultural achievement. And Rav Kook says, we need to have our own modern Hebrew, modern Jewish literature. Because if we revive Hebrew, in a way that we can translate Dostoevsky and Cervantes into Hebrew, which was done. That doesn't ipso facto make it Hebrew and certainly not Jewish literature. It's Russian or Spanish literature in translation, and translation is wonderful. As I mentioned earlier, we all consume culture in translation, but translation allows you to be a tourist, Translation opens doors to other worlds and other cultures that you would not have access to without it. And like a tourist, you're able to experience that world, but you'll never be at home in it the way either a native or someone who makes their home in that other culture is. You'll always be a tourist. Now, there are tourists who know their way around, there are places you go to that you've never been to before, and you're really an outsider. And there are other places that you visit, and you you do feel at home in. But you're still a tourist. Rav Cook said, in order to part of having a healthy culture is to develop our own modern Hebrew literature. And just like those other classic world authors I've, I've mentioned, develop their writing from within the sources of their culture. Modern Hebrew literature is going to do that, drawing on, on our bookshelves. And young Agnon, his name wasn't even Agnon yet. He arrives in Jaffa in 1908. His name is Shmuel Yosef Chachkis. Chachkis was his birth name. Agnon is a pen name he takes uh, shortly after arriving. And Rav quickly identifies this young Agnon as the type of author we need to accomplish this. Agnon—it's the story—is told that you know Agnon had been writing stories and he'd begun publishing things, and Riff Cook was very interested, and Riff Cook asked to to see some of his writing. Agnon's most important work, written in that early period in uh, in the land of Israel, is a, a a long novella. It was published first serially in the newspaper and then as a as a kind of standalone book. It was his first publication in in book form, a work called Vehaya HaKov LaMishor. In English, it was recently translated in our series as "And the Crooked Shall Be Made Straight," from Toby Press. And it's a, a kind of tragic tale of uh, of a man and his wife back in back in uh, in Buchach, uh, in Ognon's uh, in hometown. It's set about a century prior to its uh, publication. And it's actually the story of an aguna and the birth of a mamzer, a woman who, whose husband disappears, not, not aguna in the contemporary sense of a man who refuses to give his wife again, but in the classic halachic sense, he disappears. And accidentally or mistakenly, I should say, the rabbis allow her to remarry, uh, misunderstanding a piece of the evidence uh, which leads them to believe that he's dead. In fact, he's very much alive. And when he finally arrives, long delayed back in town, he discovers it's the eve of the Brit Milan of the son that was born to her from her second marriage. They had actually been childless uh, when they were were married. And what he does and the decisions he makes and the self-destruction involved, well, this is not exactly the Mesilat Yisharim. This is a story of the birth of a mamzer. Of course, no one in town knows this. Only this tragic fellow who takes the secret with him to his grave, and we, the readers, but everyone else in town are unaware that this child that was born is a mamzer, a a halachic bastard, unable, if anyone were to know, to marry into the mainstream Jewish community because he was born out of wedlock. She was legally married. Halachically married to this fellow uh, who was mistakenly presumed dead, so Ogden was a little skeptical about showing this work to uh, to Reb Cook. It's a little scandalous. I mean, by our standards today, it's it's not even rated PG; it's rated G. But the standards, you understand, the standards have been lowered, uh, uh, you know, in in the last century plus. Uh, but because of its kind of uh, sensitive uh, halachic uh, nature he's skeptical about showing it to Rav Ultimately he does. Rav reads it before it's published, when it's still in manuscript, and he hands it back to Agnon, and according to Agnon's report, Rav said to him, Zehu Sipur Ivri Be'emet. This is an authentic, the word Ivri at this point in history is tricky. Ivri means both Jewish but it also means Hebrew, meaning in the Hebrew language, meaning it means both. This is an authentic Hebrew Jewish story, <laughs> which flows through the divine channels with no barrier. Now, whatever that Kabbalistic metaphor means is, is not important. But what Cook was saying, or it's not important for us right now, but what Cook was saying was that this is exactly the type of work that the new Jewish society in the land of Israel needs. It is not the guide for the perplexed. It is not a Musr Safer, although we can learn a lot from modern literature. It's a tragic modern tale. But it's one which emanates culturally from the wellsprings of, of Judaism. That's what modern literature does. And uh, I think that story encapsulates something of why Ruff Cook saw something positive in Agnon's. Agnon's writing. Agnon maintained a lifelong, of course. Rav Cook passed away in 1935. Uh, Agnon lived until 1970, but Agnon maintained a lifelong uh, reverence for uh, for Rovkook. And uh, those of you that will come to visit us here in the Beit Agnon on your next uh, visit to Jerusalem, you, you can hear some of the many anecdotes that uh, that get passed around about their about their relationship and about the time that Rovkook came to visit here and other such things
0: what is your favorite agnon story or book and why oh well,
1: that's a tricky question um i i tend to favor his novellas his you know kind of longer short stories i think that's the format where he's able to be most agnonian meaning able to be most um uh, intertextually engaged and, and to maintain the, to maintain the, the, um, you know, this work of dialogue with the classical sources uh, most successfully. In a longer novel, it's hard to keep that up. And in a shorter story, and he has some very microscopically short stories, one page, um, in some of the shorter stories, it's, you don't even notice it because it's too, it's too brief. But there's a number of uh, there's a number of uh, of these novellas that appear uh, in different volumes in Hebrew and in the English editions. The English editions don't necessarily map on to the Hebrew editions. The stories are rearranged and grouped together differently in the English editions. Uh, in, in English, we have a volume called uh, Two Scholars Who Were in Our Town" and other novellas. It's a collection of four uh, four novellas. I think before they are very, very representative of you know some of his best, some of his best work. It includes uh, besides the title story, it includes uh, the story Tihila, which I had mentioned earlier, which is clearly his most, let's say, beloved story. It's the story that you know over the decades, uh, you know, the the reading public has maintained you know the the greatest affection for. That might be because it. Remains eternally on the Bagrut exam, on the matriculation examinations in high school. So, unfortunately, you know, for many people, uh, it's one of the only stories that they've ever read. Um, but, but in terms of the novels, the longer stories, he's got a um, he's got a novel called Sipur Pashut in English called A Simple Story, which I often recommend to people as a, a starting point if you want to read something uh, something longer. Uh, but ultimately, it doesn't really doesn't really matter. You know, there's stories that are more well known, there's stories that are less well known, there's stories that, you know, even in Hebrew, are not, you know, widely known or, or, or often read or, you know, dealt with in the scholarly uh, literature, but among the kind of classics, those are, those are some of the ones that, you know, people come to again, again and again.
0: Tell us just a little bit uh, about Toby Press, what you have done and what the goals are going forward.
1: So the, Toby Press is, a, uh, is an imprint of Koren Publishers, which of course is probably well known to many of our, our listeners. Koren uh, has a number of different imprints, including Magid books, which are books of uh, Jewish thought, uh, and Toby Press, which are works of modern literature, although largely Hebrew literature in translation. And uh, the publisher, uh, Mr. Matthew Miller of, of Jerusalem, uh, you know, who himself is a, a great lover of Agnon and classic uh, Hebrew literature, had this idea to put out uh, revised and new editions of Agnon in uh, in translation. And I came on as the series editor of that project. Uh, the project grew in the in the making. When we started, we thought it was going to be five volumes or seven volumes. In the end, it was fifteen. Uh, volumes. At the moment, the project is is complete, although we did not translate all of uh, Agnon's writings into into English. What we did was we took the the, uh, most important stories that had not yet been translated. The history of Agnon translation is a story that has not yet been fully told. Agnon uh, was already being translated into European languages and into English very early on, I think the earliest Agnon translations uh, were, were taking place in the early 1920s. Um, Agnon's publisher, Shlomo Zalman Shokin of the Shokan Press, who, who uh, controls the rights to Agnon's writings in Hebrew until this day, um, understood that in order to have a world class author, a kind of author that some committee in Stockholm might pay attention to, you cannot leave him untranslated in Hebrew because no one will. No, he exists. Remember, the choice to write in Hebrew, which Agdon makes at the age of twenty in nineteen oh eight, was very curious because in the nineteen teens and twenties and thirties, there were many, many, many millions more readers in Yiddish than there were in Hebrew. Economically it made absolutely no sense. You can only understand it as an ideological decision to become a Hebrew writer. Financially it made no sense. I mean, just the amount of Yiddish writing that was going on. Unfortunately now we don't we don't read much of that Yiddish literature. Uh, neither in the original because so few of us can read Yiddish uh, or or in translation. We know, you know, the Tevye stories of Shalom Aleichem and a few a few other, a few other things. Um, you know, in the end, it was a safer bet to go with uh, with Hebrew literature, but at the time, it didn't make any sense. And Shokin understood that in order to become a world class writer, you have to you have to have translations. And he financed many of those early translations. But uh, the, you know, some of Agnon's most important works had not been translated to English until our series. And frankly, some stories that. Nobody paid much attention to when they came out, and which are largely forgotten in Hebrew today, uh, were translated decades ago. There was no kind of plan for what got translated, you know, when. So, what we did was we collected up the existing translations and we revised them. And then we commissioned new translations of the most significant untranslated works. And put them put them out. And our editions all have some kind of um, you know, ancillary material: a new forward, a new afterward, uh, a in, in very many cases annotations, illustrated annotations that fill in that kind of, of source work and referencing uh, to, to the, the classical sources, to the rabbinic sources, to historical. Uh, realia that he's he's making mention of that, you know, frankly, no reader, you know, in Hebrew today uh, would necessarily know unless they happen to be a professor of that particular moment in, in history. So our volumes have that kind of scholarly apparatus that fill in those blanks. But that material is in the back of the book, because you're meant to encounter the literary text itself, unadulterated and unadorned, and to immerse yourself into it. And if you have a question, then you can look up something in the in the reference material uh, elsewhere in the in the volume. At the moment, the series has it's been completed now already for a, a few years. After we completed that list of the most important, the most important untranslated works. So then the things that were lower down on the list now have moved up. Uh, you know, and there are other things that I, I think you know I'd like to undertake. And it could be in, in time we'll come back and put out another volume or two of, uh, of new
0: materials. This has been fascinating. We can go on and on. But unfortunately, uh, time, I believe, is is up. And, uh, first of all, thank you very, very much, Rabbi Sachs. <laughs> we encourage all our visitors and listeners to explore the world of Shai Agnon, to buy the books, whether it's in the original, if you can do it, or obviously in the translated and uh, mm-hmm. sacks mentioned the Shai Agnon house which i believe is down the block from the American embassy. It's yes well i we
1: say it's, the american uh, embassy is down the block from us because we got there first. The embassy
0: is down the block from the shy Next american time
1: you embassy. have to come to renew your passport, you can come in to visit uh, the Agnon house. You can find us online at agnonhouse.org.il. The visiting hours, you don't need to make an appointment when the house is open, you can come into the self-guided tour. Uh, it's it's worth uh, it's worth the visit. Uh, and of course, you can find the catalog of the Toby Press books on their website and uh, the books themselves, of course, are available in most of the chain bookstores in here in Israel, at least, or on uh, or on Amazon, uh, you can find them. Uh, okay.
0: Thank you again very, very much. We appreciate it. Thank you.